New Year, everyone. I guess that's tomorrow, but happy early New Year. I hope you all will take some time today or tomorrow, if you have not already, look back and see how God has been faithful in your lives, as Kenny led us in prayer, to consider how He has been good to us. Today, I want us to look forward to 2018. I want you to be excited as a member of this church, especially, about the great things God might have in store for us in the next year. In the weeks to come, you'll continue to hear from the elders and myself about how we would like to, on our four-year anniversary coming up in February, to reaffirm our covenant and our mission and our values as a church. And I think it's great that we're starting this new sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, because throughout the next, like I've mentioned a couple times, the next couple years or so, we're going to be asking two simple questions. Who is Jesus? And what does it look like for us to follow him? And so that will really help us, as I said, to reaffirm what does it mean for us to be a church together? What does it mean for us to be Christians? What does it mean to follow Jesus Christ? And so in today's passage, we're going to mostly be answering that first question. Who is Jesus? And as we see who Jesus is, I think there are three things that all of us need for your 2018. I, I can guarantee it. All of you need faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is, is love. So I'm going to use that as part of our outline this morning is that through learning about Jesus in this passage, it should increase our faith, our hope, and our love. So if you would, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to break it down into its three sections. So starting in verse 13, all the way to the end of verse 23. If you're not used to using a Bible, the chapter number are the larger numbers, and the verse numbers are the smaller numbers. So chapter 2, found on page 808 in the Black Bibles, little number 13. Now when they, meaning the Magi, the wise men, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that, the Lord, when, when he, saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee." And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here's the outline. I'm going to use the projector to help us. Today, today's message, by the way, just as a kind of forewarning, it, it's, um, I'd say, a, a bit complicated at times. These three passages of Scripture that we'll see in the Old Testament are going to be really uh, a challenge for us to figure out what, in fact, Matthew's saying, at least on the surface. So hopefully this will help as a visual aid. Uh, we're going to be all over the Bible, so you can either flip around or just look at the screen. If you really want notes and the note-taking device isn't helpful for you but, but distracting, I'll just email you my notes if you want to ask for them later. So if you want to just listen and try and really focus, it's going to have some, you're going to need some focus. Let's just put it that way, Okay. So we're going we're to dive into the Bible today, and so here's the three outline points just to know where we're going. Knowing Jesus, number one, as the Son of God will increase our love. I believe that the more you see Jesus being the Son of God, this will help you know God's love for you. Number two, knowing Jesus started the new covenant will help increase your hope 
And number three, knowing Jesus is a Nazarene will help increase our faith. Faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. So we're going to spend most of our time on point number one, a little bit of time on point number two, and a short teeny bit kind of a conclusion on point three. Just as a forewarner, if you're like, wow, this sermon's going to take two years, it's going to be 2018 by the time we're done. So as, as a, before we dive into point one, here's a helpful picture, I think, or illustration of where uh, we're going with this message. In 2017, I took on a reading challenge to try and read a, a lot of books, and by God's grace, I was able to read a lot. And the purpose of me doing this reading challenge was not because I didn't read enough already. It was because I mostly only read the same kind of books, Jesus books, Bible books, nonfiction, theology books. That's all I would read prior to this year. And I found this reading challenge that would make me read, if I followed it, novels and fiction books and books about nature and books about self-improvement. And there was just this long, long list of all these different types of books. And so for kind of like the first time in my life, I read a whole bunch of biographies and I read novels and different things. And I'm not a novel reader. I'm not a fiction reader, as I kind of just mentioned. And I realized that like not being a fiction reader, I probably should have like asked for some advice or got some counsel, but I just kind of dove into it. And the reading challenge didn't tell me which books to read. It would just say, read a Christian novel. And so I heard from a friend that there's this book by C.S. Lewis called Paralandra, and it's amazing. Like, it's really, really good. And I'm like, oh, sweet. I got this good recommendation. I had no idea where to start, so I started reading Paralandra. Now, if you know anything about Paralandra, C.S. Lewis wrote three books in what's called a space trilogy. Paralandra is book number two. I was told Paralandra is just so good. Got to read Paralandra. So I just went right into Paralandra. Anybody know anything about reading fiction more than I do? Like, you should not read book two first. You should start with book one, and I did not do this. And so as I'm reading Paralandra, I'm starting to realize, you know, this book's not that good. I don't know what all the hype is about why this is like, I must read this. And then I started talking to my brother, who is a huge C.S. Lewis fan and read almost everything that C.S. Lewis has written. And we were Skyping because he lives over in Indonesia. So we're Skyping and we're talking about this reading that I'm doing. And I say, hey, so I'm reading Paralandra. I- I'm-, I'm not feeling it. And he's like, what? What's, what's-, what's wrong with you? Paralandra is like one of the best books C.S. Lewis wrote. And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I'm not getting this and that about it. And he's like, well, what did you think about book number one? I'm like, well, I didn't read book number one yet. He's like, idiot, what are you doing? Like, read book one before you get to book two, and then that makes sense of the characters and the story and the whole plot, and it fills in all the details. Now, the reason I tell you this story is mostly to help you understand that as we dive into this text of Scripture and these three points, most of us in this room are like me. You have only read book two, or at least you're only familiar with book two of the Bible. It's called the New Testament. But without a really robust knowledge of book one, the Old Testament, you're going to be like me and not, like you'll like it. It's good. Like Paralandra was good, but I'm not putting it on my like top 10 books of 2017 list because I was an idiot and I didn't read book one first and I probably would have enjoyed it better. So maybe I'll read book one and then reread Paralandra in 2018. We'll see. Probably not. But I think that when you and I get to this passage in particular, and the New Testament in general, we are at a disservice because we have skipped over book one. And so what I want you to see throughout our message today is that that's foolish. And I want to help us to just recap some of the story at times because without knowing book one well, you're just going to be like, okay, yeah, I got it. Yeah, I've heard that before. But Oh, no, no, no. There was a whole story behind this that helps you when you get to Jesus in the New Testament and you get to Matthew's gospel. It's going to make all the world of a difference, and I think it'll increase your love, your hope, and your faith. So point number one, knowing Jesus is the Son of God will increase our love. This is going to come from verses 13, 14, and 15. Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. 
Now what you're going to notice in each of these points, in each of these sections, is there's going to be a little story about Jesus, and then a story about Herod and Bethlehem massacre, and then a little story about Jesus and Mary and Joseph again. And at the end of each of these little snippets and accounts is this little phrase, and this fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet, etc., etc. So what I want us to figure out is, number one, what is he doing here with attaching this story about Jesus and connecting it to this prophet? So let's first just answer some simple questions. Question number one, what is the prophet that Matthew is quoting in chapter 2, verse 15? Audience participation, please. Anyone know? Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, some of you are like, man, I really don't know book one at all. And really, if you want to be an instant Bible scholar real quick and be like, oh, okay, maybe these guys aren't that smart. In your black Bibles or in most of your Bibles, there's going to be a little footnote after out of Egypt I called my son or right before it. So in these Bibles right here, the, the ones in front of you, there's a little letter A right next to out. And if you follow your eyes down to very small fine print, it'll show you, oh, He's quoting Hosea 11.1, which we have here. So here's Hosea 11.1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. What kind of prophecy is that? Look at Hosea 11.1 very closely. Is this about Jesus leaving Jerusalem and going to Egypt. Now, I don't think you need to be a Bible scholar to figure, no, no, that has nothing to do with Jesus. As far as on the surface, it doesn't appear to. In fact, it seems to be talking about Israel. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Well, okay, maybe the son thing has to do with Jesus, but what does that have to do with Israel? And there's no prediction here. It's not like Hosea is painting a little picture for us that he has this movie or vision in his mind where he says, hey, one day, a couple thousand years from now or a hundred years from now, there's going to be this incident where Mary and Joseph are about to get attacked and to try and kill baby Jesus. Like, that's not what's going on here at all. So why in the world is Matthew picking up Hosea 11.1 and telling you, oh, this is exactly what's going on with Jesus? If you're wondering, like, I, I have no idea, it's because we've skipped book one. It's because book one is not in like the just core of who we are and we're not just entrenched in the Old Testament scriptures. So remember, this is a sequel. This is book two. Let's remind ourselves what happened in book one. Exodus chapter one, eight and 11. I'm going to kind of go through some passages real quick to refresh our memories of book one. Now there arose a new king over Egypt he said to his people, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. If war breaks out, they will join our enemies and they will fight against us. So therefore, let's make them have difficult lives and afflict them with heavy burdens and make them slaves. And then in the next passage, Exodus chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and they made their lives bitter with hard service. And then in this context, look at the next passage, Exodus chapter 1, verse 22. Then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, commanded all of his people, every Israelite son that is born must be cast into the Nile River. One woman had a baby boy and hid him for three months, but when she could hide him no longer, she made him a basket and put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And the Pharaoh's daughter was bathing in the river, and she saw the baby in the basket and took pity on him. She had a woman raise the boy, and when the child grew older, her... He became her son, and she named him Moses, because Moses means to draw out. This story in Exodus chapter 1 and 2 is important for you to understand what Matthew is doing in Matthew chapter 2. Moses and Jesus are being contrasted in Matthew all through his gospel, and it has already begun, and it continues here. Both Jesus and Moses were born in a land with a crazy, tyrannical king in power, Herod and Pharaoh. Both were almost killed because of a decree from that crazy king who was afraid of the threat to his kingdom. 
Both of these men would be rescued so that one day they would be used by God to rescue God's people out of slavery. Do you see the parallels between Jesus and Moses? Especially this idea of there's a crazy king who's afraid of the threat of his kingdom, and so he wants to kill a bunch of babies. This is why Matthew is quoting Hosea 11.1, but you might be thinking, what does this have to do with Hosea 11.1 now? Exodus chapter 4, verses 21 and 23 is the next part of the Exodus story that you should know because it's crucial. Exodus 4, 21 through 23, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. Look very closely at the last little phrase here, the third to last line. Let my son go. Who is Moses supposed to go up to Pharaoh and say, let my people go? Who's he talking about? The nation of Israel, right? But what does he call the nation of Israel here in chapter 4? The Son of God. Bible trivia time. Who is the first person or people to be called the Son of God in the Bible? Not Jesus, the incarnate Son, but Israel. So when Hosea 11 verse 1 is talking about the Son, in the next slide I think, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Who is Hosea talking about? Israel. When Israel was a a young infant nation, God chose to love them. How, How did God love the nation of Israel? Well, he called them out of slavery, and he called his son out. Remember, let my people go is let my firstborn son go, and This is all the more clear when you look at verse 2. You keep reading Hosea, by the way, because some people do this, right? You see that little footnote? You're like, oh, let me go back and read Hosea. You're like, it's going to tell me about Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. And and then you go there and you read, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals, and they were burning offerings to idols. And you're like, that has nothing to do with Jesus. That has nothing to do with Mary and Joseph. And you're all the more confused because that's not what this kind of prophecy is trying to do. It's not trying to tell you that Hosea prophesied and predicted that one day Jesus would go to Egypt. It's not what's going on. He's saying that in Hosea, there's a passage that talks about God loving his firstborn son, Israel, calling them out. And that when he does so, he is trying to bring them to himself, but instead... They keep running away from God. Do you see that in this passage? He loves them, he's calling them, and they are running from him instead of to him. What happens right after God saves them from the slavery? They start worshiping idols. Read the story of Israel, and it is a downward spiral of running away from God, and Israel, the first son of God, failed miserably at being the son of God. So we need a new son of God, one that God loves, one that God will find faithful. And this is, in fact, who we get with Jesus. Jesus is the new son of God, the true and better son of God, the new and better Israel. And this is what Matthew is doing. He is not twisting scriptures. He's not going and saying, oh, look, Hosea 11.1 mentions Egypt and son. Boom! Hey, that works. That's not what he's doing. He's a better Bible reader than that. He has read book one a lot better than you and I have. And so when we read Matthew, we should realize that what he's trying to say is that the sequel to the first book is going to be similar, but so much better. Now in movie land, it is not that way. I just found an article because I was thinking about this idea and I looked it up and like apparently statistically, movies that are sequel movies do terrible with ratings and box office. Like, how many times have you guys, like, watched uh, the first original and then you watch the second one? Like, that was terrible. Like, they should not make a third, and then they do, and then, and you're like, please stop. So, 
Sequels, oftentimes in our day and age, are terrible. In the Bible, the sequel is similar and, and all the themes and ideas, but it's actually much better. So in this case, you have a much better Israel, a much better Moses, because Jesus is in fact going to play both the role of Moses and Israel in the sequel story in the New Testament. Just like Moses, when Jesus is a child, God will rescue him out of the hands of this crazy, bloodthirsty king. But this time, he is not going to be the king of Egypt. This time, who is Jesus fleeing from? Herod, the self-proclaimed king of the Jews. And this time, he is not rescuing out of Egypt. He is being rescued to Egypt. It's not the same exact story, but it's very, very similar, isn't it? But notice the the twist. Notice the flip when you get to the second story in the sequel. Herod is now the new Pharaoh. Jerusalem is now the new Egypt. In other words, what Matthew is doing is he's reading the Old Testament and reading the whole grand story, and he sees that Israel started with God calling them out of Israel or out of Egypt. And as he does so, he is loving them. He is loving them and rescuing them from Pharaoh, this crazy, terrible ruler. And out of Egypt, that place of bondage and slavery. And Matthew wants his Jewish audience to know that the new nation of Israel is getting started under Jesus Christ. And the crazy ruler is not some king over Egypt. It's the king over the Jews. Could you imagine hearing that? If you were reading this right as a Jew, because Matthew was written toward a Jewish audience as far as we can tell, That it's not the Egyptian taskmaster that's going and killing babies. It's the Jewish king. All through Matthew's gospel, as we spend the next several months studying it, you are going to see the people of Israel are those who are called things like, you brood of vipers. That's just in the next chapter, chapter 3. Or later on in chapter 23, Jesus is going to say, Woe to you, Israelite leaders, because you are the ones crushing people under heavy burdens, and you do not even lift a finger to help them. Who does that sound like? Exodus chapter 1. We are going to crush you down with heavy burdens and be a terrible taskmaster and make you a slave. And Jesus is saying, Woe to you, Israel. You have become the new Egypt. And your so-called rulers and kings have become the new pharaohs. They're the ones who actually do murder God's ultimate son, not just threaten to do so with many children, but the ultimate son, Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one and only faithful son of God. He was the only true son of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 17, you'll see this passage. In the very next chapter, we're going to see God come and speak and say, this is my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. How much does God love Jesus as his faithful son? So here's, here's, here's the takeaway point for us, my friends. If God so loved Israel in book number one, despite her many failures and her terrible unfaithfulness, how much more then in book two does God love the new son of God, Jesus Christ, who remained faithful all the way to the point of death? Do you see the contrast? Do you see where this story is going? God continued to faithfully love the first son of God, Israel. Then the new son of God comes, Jesus Christ. How much more then does he love Jesus, who never failed, was always faithful? Do you see, Matthew is introducing to us, Jesus is the new son of God, the ultimate son of God. You're supposed to have book one in your mind, not just, oh, Jesus, Son of God, that equals second person of the Trinity. Yes, that's true, but that's so, like, lacking depth. It's lacking book one. Look at Matthew chapter 27. Look at the way Matthew's gospel introduces Son of God language and then concludes with Son of God language. It is the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of Israel who start mocking Jesus as he hangs on a cross and says, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and then we will believe him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, meaning Jesus had quoted of himself, I'm the son of God. And then the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Do you see what's going on? The true Son of God is being mocked, jeered, 
reviled from every Jewish person around and saying, no, you think you're the son of God? Well, then get down off of that cross. Jesus, the beloved son, the the son to whom God is well pleased. This is how he was treated. That is, everyone treated him this way except for one random soldier. Look at the next passage. Matthew 27, 54. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place. At this point, Jesus is dead. He breathed his last. They were filled with awe and truly and said, truly, this was the Son of God. How incredible. This is what we saw last week. It is magi from the east that are coming down and bowing before Jesus, not the Jewish scribes in Jerusalem. Here in Matthew 27, it is not the Jewish scribes and leaders of Israel that are saying, wow, truly, this must be the Son of God. They are, they are making fun of him. They are spitting at him. They're saying, ah, Son of God. Ha. But it is a Gentile Roman soldier that is looking back in awe and saying, wow, that's, that's the Son of God. Do you see what Matthew's doing? I hope so. Because if you do, you will realize that this is good news for you and for me. If God so loves Jesus this much, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And his death proves that he is truly the son of God. Then this means that you and I can also be sons of God through his substitutionary death. Galatians 4 makes this quite plain. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Who is the son of God? Jesus is the son of God. But do you know that one answer to that question is, we are. We are sons of God. Israel, yes, Jesus, most definitely, but what about you? Have you ever thought that you are connected to Jesus by faith and therefore you should call yourself a son of God? You are united to Christ by faith, therefore you can be concluding to yourself, God is well pleased with me. This is why this makes all the difference to us. Our point here is that if we know Jesus is the Son of God, then this will increase our love and our understanding of God's love toward us. What a comfort it is to see how God's love rests on Jesus. Think about this for a moment. Does God have any other thing, creature, or anything that he could love more than his own Son? And the answer is no. If his highest and truest love is for his own son, his perfect and faithful son, and you, my friend, are united to him, then this means that God loves you through Christ with that perfect love. This is what Richard Sibb says in his amazing book, A Bruised Reed. It is a great comfort to see how God's love rests on Christ and the way that God is well pleased with him Therefore, we can conclude that he is well pleased with us because we are in Christ. Because he loves him and loves us with one love, let us therefore embrace Christ and in him embrace God's love. I want you to hear that one phrase again. Because he loves him, Jesus, and us with one singular love. Jesus loves you. This God, through Jesus, loves you the same way that he loves himself, the same way he loves his own son. This, my friends, should be breathtaking love that you could embrace. Sib says, embrace this. Embrace Christ, and by embracing Christ, you're embracing the perfect, amazing love of God. So have you embraced God's love Because you, my friend, are a son of God if you're united to Jesus by faith. If you have embraced it, if it warms your heart, if it helps you to have confidence that, yes, somebody does love me, what do you need in 2018? The confidence to know that you are loved. And if God will never change his love toward his son Jesus, 
then that means he will never change his love toward you the rest of this year, no matter what you do. That's point number one. Knowing that Jesus is the Son of God helps increase our love for him as we understand how much he has loved us in Christ. Point number two, shorter point, that's the plan at least. Knowing Jesus started a new covenant will increase our hope. Look at chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were with, who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then what was fulfilled was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Friends, in this section, we have another important question. Who is the prophet that is being spoken of? Answer? Anyone? Audience participation? This one's a little easier. It's like right in our text. Jeremiah, thank you. Verse 17, this was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. Now, which passage of Scripture, instant Bible scholars, use your Bibles well, read small print, which passage is he quoting? 31.15, and this is exactly how 31.15 reads. It's a direct quote. A this is what the Lord says, a voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to become, be comforted because they are no more. Now again, we have the same question. Is this a prediction prophecy? It is not. This is not saying that one day there would be a slaughter of Herod. This is talking about Rachel. It's talking about a bunch of weeping women, and they don't find any comfort whatsoever. What in the world is going on? Why is Matthew quoting this text and attaching it to the life of Jesus? I hope you're starting to see why this is a bit complex, okay? Here's, here's the backstory from book number one in case you missed it. Jewish moms are weeping like Rachel. So Rachel is seen as a metaphorical character. Rachel, by the way, died giving birth to her son Benjamin, and you can read about that in Genesis 35. So if you know that Rachel's this woman who gave birth and her last words were about her great sorrow for losing her son at childbirth, then you'd understand why they use Rachel as kind of a personification of these weeping women, okay? Follow me here. So you've got these women that are weeping like Rachel did in Genesis 35. Why are they weeping? Good question. Because the nation is being destroyed by Assyria and Babylon, and the sons of these women are going out to battle. Many of them are dying. Many of them are being held into captivity. And they are also uh, afraid that the younger children, the younger boys, will grow up to become military threats in the future. So they just take all the boys. They either kill them in battle, or they take them in captivity, or something like that. So imagine a nation of women in Israel, and your boys are being taken from you. What, what are you going to hear? I mean, imagine we go into the nursery and we just steal all the children. I mean, I'm not suggesting it. I didn't think that's a terrible idea. But imagine we, we have terrible security here and the nursery workers are like, oh yeah, just take the, take the kids. I, you know, they, they're kind of loud and fussy anyway. So, you, you know, there would be weeping. Would there not be weeping? Would there not be moms? Can you imagine like the, the movie scenes of the mom with their kids like, no, and they're like being taken from them? Have you seen this? this? This is the background to Jeremiah 31. This is what's going on in book number one. And the, what you're supposed to know is not just the background of the women who are weeping because they're losing their children, but you're supposed to know that Jeremiah 31 is an entire chapter of hope, and there's really just one verse about doom and gloom, and it's this one. But it's, it's centered around, you, you could serve yourself really well this afternoon by reading Jeremiah 31. But I'm going to just give you two verses. The next two verses, that is. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Now that's pretty like, what? Imagine telling that to a woman who just lost her son. 
stop crying. You know, I don't think it was with that tone, but like, I'm wondering, what, what, what in the world kind of tone is this coming out? Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears for, there's a reason why you should stop weeping. There's a reason for hope. For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country. That's a good promise. Stop your weeping. Your children are going to come back. I'm going to return them to you. You don't need to cry. There is hope in your future. Wipe the tears from your eyes. Do you see why this scripture might come to mind in Matthew's mind when he's thinking about a group of women in Bethlehem that just had their sons slaughtered two years and younger? He's thinking about a previous story in book number one where there was a group of women that were weeping because they lost their sons. But he's also thinking about the promise of hope, about the return of the sons. The reason why we need to connect these stories isn't just because of how similar they are, but you should know that Ramah, that's referenced here, is six miles north of Bethlehem. And Rachel, who's being referred to in this passage, gave birth to the son that she's weeping about as she breathes her last breath and dies in childbirth. And we don't know exactly, but it's around Bethlehem. And that's where her tomb then gets placed in terms of a, as they're heading toward Bethlehem. So there's so many connections in this passage to Bethlehem, to weeping women who have lost their children. It makes perfect sense if you knew book one. Do you see what I'm saying here? Matthew then quotes it because he doesn't just want to say, oh, we've seen this story before. But we've seen the God who comes into this story and breathes life and hope to women in these situations. That's what he's doing here. Jesus is the one who will bring the hope to the weeping mothers because Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope of the Jeremiah 31 women. If you look further in Jeremiah 31, this is the next passage. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. I wish we could spend more time on this. But you need to know that if you read Hebrews chapter 8, it quotes that passage explicitly and says, Jesus is the one who made all that come true. Jesus is the one who brings the hope to the Jeremiah 31 woman, at least ultimately and finally. In fact, every week when you take the Lord's Supper here at Embassy Church, you hear Jesus reference the phrase, this is the new covenant in my blood. By the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus, he has inaugurated a new covenant, and we remember that every single week at this church. Because there is hope, my friends, through the blood of Christ. Jesus is the hope of the new covenant. He puts an end to weeping mothers and weeping fathers and anyone who's here today weeping. He wipes away the tears from our eyes because our future, my friend, it is full of hope. Your 2018 might have terrible things in it, but your future beyond 2018 is full of hope. He brings the children that are killed in Bethlehem back from the dead. He is the God who conquers death. The slaughter of small children is not typically the favorite story to tell during the Christmas pageants, is it? But it's in here, isn't it? Why, why do we just stop with, you know, the wise men and the shepherds and the angels? Why don't we talk about the next story in the Christmas pageant? After Jesus is born, they have to run for their lives into Egypt. And then a whole slew of maybe 20, 30, best guess, of young boys, two years and younger. Baby boys die. Because if God can provide hope for weeping mothers like this, then how much more does Jesus provide that hope? If God can provide hope to weeping mothers while the exile is not finished, it's still going on, then how much more hope does Jesus bring now that the exile is finished and the new covenant has been established with the coming of Christ? 
And you might be wondering, how does this tangibly, give me something to hold on to, Pastor Phil. What can I hold on to in 2018 to have hope no matter how bad things get? When we hear more atrocities of terror attacks and school shootings or anything like that, how can God provide hope for weeping people in 2018? I want to remind you of another Christmas that happened not too long ago. And it just so happened that on this Christmas, I was preaching peace on earth two days after Sandy Hook shooting in Connecticut. Anyone remember this? Terrible atrocity of children being slaughtered by guns in a school. And I remember feeling like, how in the world, God, do I go up on stage and tell a bunch of people that the coming of Jesus brings peace on earth after what just happened that Friday? And I feel like God gave me a very clear word in that moment. And he said to me, Phil, there were fathers that on that Friday who took their sons and daughters off to school. And they did not know what would happen that day. And if they would have known, they probably would have not have let their kids go to school. Would, would you all agree? If you got some sort of prophecy, an angel, a dream, a vision, just some sort of word, there's going to be a shooting at the school today. Leave the kids at home. I'm, I'm guessing 10 out of 10, 100 out of 100, all of you are leaving your kids at home that day. You do whatever it takes. And I was, I was thinking about that idea that these parents had no idea what happened when they dropped their kids off to school or put them on the bus that day. But you see, the message of Christmas tells us that there was another father who sent his one and only son to the earth, knowing full well what would happen, and he still did it anyway. Do you not see the love of the Father toward us, the hope that he provides to all of us? Can you think of another God or religion or philosophy that can tell people that their God, their philosophy, knows what it's like to lose a son? And I felt like God was telling me that morning to stand up on a Sunday morning and say, listen, the God of the Bible knows what it's like to lose a son. Because he lost his son. You will not get this from any other world religion. No other faith, no other philosophy. Only Christianity and the amazing story of the incarnation tells us that Jesus did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. He humbled himself. He became obedient. Took on the form of a servant. And died on a cross for us. And God, the Father, went through with it. This, my friends, should bring hope to us because I can tell you, not as some sort of religious garb, some sort of like, oh, throwaway phrase, God knows what you're going through. He understands. I can tell you, he knows exactly what you're going through, even if you lose your own child because he lost his child. That's point number two. Jesus coming, establishing the new covenant, dying on the cross. This message brings hope to weeping people. May it increase our hope this year. Third and finally, shortest point, let's conclude. Knowing Jesus is a Nazarene will increase our faith. Chapter 2, verses 19 and 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Well, we've done it every time so far. Let's do it again. Which prophet is being quoted here in this story? Anyone? Bueller? <laughs> Anyone? Isaiah, good guess. Anyone else? Read it very carefully. What does it say in verse 23? So that what was spoken by, did you notice something? Prophets. Matthew doesn't do this. He does it here, though. 
Look at the other ones, the prophet Jeremiah, or what was spoken by the prophet singular. Here, he quotes prophets. And then, where's your footnote point you to on this little quotation? And everybody's looking, and they're trying to find it, and they see this. Ta-da! What is Matthew quoting here? And the answer is either, we don't know, that's an option, or he's just making something up because the Bible authors of the New Testament just like to make up stuff and make the Bible say whatever they want it to, and he's never actually read book number one. Or option three. He is alluding to a theme through the prophets that has some sort of connection to Nazarene. Which option do you want to go with? One, we have no idea. That's, that, that could be true. Two, he's just making something up and twisting Scripture. Or three, I'm going to go with three. All right. Now, whoever said Isaiah, there is a good chance that it was Isaiah 11.1. 1, and he's not quoting a verse. He's not quoting Isaiah 11.1, 1, but he's quoting the phrase from the Hebrew word branch that sounds like Nazarene, Nazar. Because this is a messianic prophecy that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, the backstory here is that from Jesse came King David. And King David's kingdom was supposed to grow up into this big tree, but the kingdom fell down, and so the tree got chopped down, and now all you have is a stump. And Isaiah's prophecy is saying that from that stump, I'm still going to grow a branch out of it. That's the prophecy. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit again. There'll be life out of David's line again. Who fulfills that prophecy, my friends? It's the Messiah, Jesus Christ. He comes out of the line of David, and he provides fruit out of the David tree, even though it got chopped down and the kingdom fell apart. So most people seem to think it has something to do with this Nazar branch prophecy that runs really through Isaiah's prophecy, because look at the next passage. When you get to the end of Isaiah, you realize that the Messiah is not going to be a conquering king, but a suffering servant. And you may not have caught this, and I have never caught this until this week, but look. For he grew up before him like a young plant. He, he picks up that branch imagery here. And he says that there will be out of a root of dry ground Someone who comes. And what is he like? He's terrible. No form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. It seems like what Matthew is doing And this, my friends, I mean, this will help you appreciate the inspire word of the Holy Spirit on the authors of the Bible. Like, not only do they know their Bibles really well, but man, they must have had help from God. (laughs) That's that's my only conclusion. And so, he he picks up Nazar with branch, attaches it to the suffering servant, and then here's the other thing. The suffering servant is what? What's the theme of this passage? The one who comes from the branch will be despised. That's that's the key theme. That's why he says the prophets spoke of one who would come, who would be a Messiah, who would be despised. And it's not just Isaiah. The Psalms talk about it. There's other prophecies. So it's a whole slew that we could go through. But let's just take that one idea, and then let's take our our New Testament reading that Kenny read for us earlier. Do you remember when Kenny got up here and he read John chapter 1, and there's this guy named Nathaniel and Philip, and they're being called to follow Jesus, and one of them says what? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because he was introduced as Jesus of Nazareth. And immediately there's an objection like, no, way, not Nazareth. What's Nazar? Branch, sticks. This, this will be helpful for you and I. Sticks is like the land of the sticks, like the sticks. Like they're out in the boonies, out in the boondocks, out of that like, oh, like that's where nobody good comes from. That's where all the like poor, uneducated nobodies are at. Nazareth has no recognition to it. Nobody would think, oh, wow, Na- oh, you're from Nazareth? You know, cool. No, you would be like, oh, get away from me, you know. What's Nazareth then associated with Very clearly in John chapter 1 and all through John's gospel and other New Testament writings, Nazareth is associated with being despised. 
Do you see how these two things come together? The despised servant who is the branch, who is the Nazar, is a Nazarene from Stick Town, from the Sticks. This is good, isn't it? He comes from a no-name town. No kings were born from there. There's nothing to be, oh, oh, wow, let's bow down and worship this Jesus of Nazareth. That's actually an objection to one of the followers of like, I can't follow a guy from Nazareth. And here's the concluding point for us. If God can bring something good out of Nazareth, how much more can he bring something good out of the worst parts of Palatine, this church, your heart, our life? The most violent neighborhoods in south side of Chicago or any of the slums or ghettos all over the world. If he can bring something good out of Nazareth, can he not bring something good out of Saudi Arabia, North Korea, Syria? You name the place where you would kind of associate, no, nothing good comes out of there. The gospel of Jesus, my friends, it penetrates into the lowliest of lows, the darkest of darks. It goes into the corners and crevices of the earth that nobody would think, oh, don't waste your time with them. They're from Nazareth. How many of you feel that way quite often with your own sin? Nothing good can come out of me. Do you see how this truth increases your faith? Oh, you, my friend, Yes, something good can come out of you just like something good came out of Nazareth. Something good called the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts and brings forth a branch that bears fruit in our lives. This is the good news of the gospel that Jesus proclaims to us. He brings good fruit out of the ugliest, driest, deadest of hearts. The places that are despised. The people who feel despised. That's who Jesus was as our Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we want to give you great thanks for your word. It is at times complex and difficult. I pray, God, that we would have gotten something fruitful out of this message. I pray, God, that we would be ever increasing in our love as we understand how much you love us in Jesus Christ, that we'd be ever increasing in our hope knowing that you have established a new covenant in your blood and you have brought forward your promises. I pray that we'd be ever increasing in our faith, that no matter who we are today, no matter where we've come from, no matter what our background is, no matter where we went to school, no matter who our family background is and the generations of sin that has gone before us, God, anything, anything on this earth can breathe life and have fruit come out of it. God, thank you for that truth. I pray that you'd increase our faith in it. We thank you, God, for the way that Jesus brings life out of darkness and out of death, out of desolation. We thank you that Jesus was despised. And because of that, we now fall down on our faces and we bow before that despised Son of God and say, truly, truly, he was the Son of God. Help us to do that now as we sing these next couple songs and lead us into the new year with faith, hope, and love. In Jesus' name, amen.